This is Redefining the Counterculture on Witten Radio. Make sure to check out our website at wittenradio.com. We're speaking with Brett Harvey. Brett is a director who is known for several of his documentary films. Uh, His most recent one is Inmate Number One. Uh, It is a new documentary that explores the life of Danny Trejo. Uh, Brett, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Well, thank, thank you for taking interest in the film. We're, uh, we're actually super excited with all the attention from places around the world at the point, because I think you're all the way down in Miami, if I, yeah. if I'm correct. <laughs> and I'm way up here in Canada, in Vancouver, so we're pretty excited when we get people like you interested in uh, highlighting some of the stuff in the film. Absolutely. It's such a powerful and such a riveting film. Uh, you know, Inmate Number 1, The Rise of Danny Trejo, is is trending on Twitter. It's, uh, I think it's, it made uh, iTunes uh, list, uh, it's like the number one film uh, that's being downloaded right now. And uh, the film is so engrossing. Um, how did, how did this all come about? Uh, what's the story behind it? Well, funny enough, I was coming off a documentary that couldn't be more different. I was coming off a documentary called Ice Guardians, which um, was about fighters in the NHL and uh, getting their story out. Um, so uh, as that was coming to a close, uh, one of the producers I work with on other docs named Rocky, he had been working with Danny on a, uh, you know, like a regular feature film and kind of had learned his story through that. And he passed it on to the other producer I work with quite uh, often, which is Adam Scorgi. And then Adam uh, passed it to me. And then I, I had only known Danny as the scary looking guy, like everybody else in movies. I didn't know anything about his backstory. <laughs> so I was kind of wondering, like, why, why would I be getting, you know, this uh, as, as a full-blown feature documentary? And when I looked into it, it was just—it was basically the the craziest uh, transformation of character I'd ever come across, uh, both in films I had done or films I had seen. So it was pretty much a no-brainer at that point. And uh, at that point, I also jumped on um, researching uh, for about a month and looked up, you know, a bunch of pictures and basically designed and wrote uh, a big, you know, hardcover printed pitch book that we brought down to Danny. And that's actually what ended up convincing Danny to do the film was once he had seen that book, because uh, he had been approached in the past to do, do his documentary. So he was just looking for the right people. And, and goodness, uh, we turned out to be the right guys. I love it. I love it. The, uh, the, the, the film is, is incredible because you see this side of Danny that, you know, that I, I would assume that not very many people had seen before. And, I mean, I can only imagine how it felt, um, you know, seeing that as the director. Um, what was the, the filming process like on this? Well, it began with just, you know, sitting down with Danny uh, and getting him to talk, and, and I just took notes, like I had a pile of notes by the end but you know we would be at a restaurant uh, just a, like a local diner where you know for breakfast stuff and you'd tell stories and then um 
we would uh, we'd be at his house there, and he'd be watching a football game, and once in a while he'd jump up, and, you know, cheering for his team. But in between that, all these stories would come out, and through that, I kind of got a real sense of the the enormity of what his story was. And from there, I could start <clears throat> piecing things together and uh, figuring out what questions to be asked and what environments to put him in and what angles to take on stuff. And uh, it, it, so it was, uh, it was actually th- that part of the process was just as fun as making the film because that was a real um, exploring period of, of what his past life was. But then, of course, when the interviews came as well uh, through the questioning, uh, we were able to learn a whole lot more about his life at that point. And, um, and I also would just start putting him in the environment that these stories took place in, and that would help you know, jog these memories that he hadn't you know, gone back to in years uh, at that point. So it was like one example was we uh, jumped in his old Bel Air car at one point, and I just got him to drive around his old neighborhood that he grew up in and started asking questions around that. Um, but, but even beyond the questions, he just started, you would see a building and point to it and go, Oh, we robbed that place. Or that's been torn down. Now, uh, we fought outside there against, uh, sailors with broken beer bottles, you know, <laughs> or, or we would get to his old high, we got to his old high school and he would talk about, um, how it was Richie Valens old high school, but Richie Valens was a few years ahead of him. So they never got to hang out. Uh, but he got in a bunch of fights, um, uh, Danny did, at his old school and was kicked out, and then he was, you know. Anyways, it was a bunch of stories would come out of uh, putting him in those environments. So that was kind of the process, uh, general process of the production side, and then, of course, on the other end, the uh, editing end, that's a whole separate process in itself. I hear you. What was it about Danny's story that just really stood out to you because – I know that you've done, you know, you've done set several documentaries, uh, and, um, you know, I also saw your film, um, Ice Guardians, and I, I thought it was a really incredible film. Um, what was it about Danny's story that just really drew you to him? Well, it was the idea that uh, the, the redemption aspect of it, <coughs> excuse me, the idea that, that he had gone so far down this criminal road and, you know, to the lengths that we're, you know, we're talking 12 years old, he had started using heroin. During his uh, teenage years, he was an armed robber. Um, and for the, consistently, not just once, consistently through those years. And then in his 20s, he was like a hardened prisoner in all of the penitentiaries across uh, California at the time, to the point that he actually faced three counts of the death penalty. So... Coming out of that, he ended up doing 15 years of counseling before he ever stepped on a Hollywood set. A lot of people don't realize that. And then, you know, by the time he was 39 or uh, 39 or 40 in that area, he starts this Hollywood journey, which has now turned him into a Hollywood icon, like a guy, you know, who owns restaurants, uh, taco restaurants and stuff at this point. Um, and, and is kind of still helping, not kind of, he is still helping people around the world from addicts to prisoners uh, to troubled youth. Um, so, yeah, that, that, the brevity of that story is what drew me to it. It's, it's one of those ones where, huh, I've said this so many times, but you just, it's, 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 if it was written in a script, you wouldn't believe it. 
just because it's so crazy the transition he took. Absolutely, I agree. He had a a a, a true a, his his life is a true cycle of redemption, and you know to to see it in this this documentary, you know it it's like you said, if it were scripted, you know, you almost wouldn't believe it, but to see it this way is, is just, it's incredible. It's, it's so mind blowing. Um, and it's, it's very awe inspiring. Um, you know, looking at this film, it seems like there were a lot of anecdotes, a lot of nuggets and stories from Danny's life that were explored. Um, would you say that there were any that you were unable to, um, to, to show or include uh, due to, say, like time restrictions? Well, there was tons of stories that we couldn't uh, include due to time restrictions. And I would say in every aspect of his life, because it was just like, like I was saying, that, that sailor, fighting sailors with a broken beer bottle, like that was an actual anecdote in itself as well. And then, <laughs> of course, the prison had numerous scary uh, stories attached to that and, um, you know, things that, that he was having to participate in just to survive at that point. Um, and then, and then of course, the, the whole aspect of we had to cut this film off at some point and Danny's story just continued. Like, I, it was, it's weird <laughs> as a director to be editing, editing a film and then you turn on the news and there's this flipped over car and it's a story of this 75-year-old Danny Trejo running towards the car, saving a baby out of a car, you know, flipped over a car. And, you you know, so little things like that where it would have been interesting to uh, include some of that stuff. But I think as a whole, this kind of gets the, the, the scale of what his story was, uh, is, sorry, which is, is the important aspect of it. And um, I, I think the thing, the big thing to come across in this as well is that within his search of redemption, which I think for him probably started as a destination, thinking that at some point I will, you know, have redeemed uh, the actions I'd taken when I was younger. But through the process of uh, what he's been going through after, after prison, and helping other people, I think where he's landed is he's learned that it's just a way of life, that there is no end to it. It's just how you're supposed to live, which is kind of um, a really cool message to get out uh, to people, especially, you know, in these times when there's a lot of uh, things that could be bringing everybody down and for good reason at this point. But, you know, here and there we have to have some hope and some real positive stories to keep things going as well. I completely agree. I uh, was going to ask you, I mean, I know that you are, as a filmmaker, you're used to, you know, interviewing, you know, all sorts of people um, on all sorts of topics and subjects. But uh, what was going through your head as you interviewed Danny? Was there ever a time where what he was saying was so um, (laughs) different? Did it ever blow your mind with some of the stuff that he consistently, consistently, (laughs) it would blow, uh, blow everyone's mind. It was uh, like, it's funny because we sat down for the first, like, uh, I broke it into one. Well, 
there were three main in, sit-down interviews, and then I had several interviews that took place in environments where you'd be walking around or standing up or, you know, going through past places. But there was three sit-down ones, and each one of those interviews, like, I think the first one might have been three or four hours. Uh, the second one was probably three hours. That was the prison one. And then the third one was the Hollywood one, which was probably, again, another two to three hours. Uh, I, I would say the prison one, there was many times where you would finish an answer and you just like let out a holy crap. Like everybody would just be kind of let out a breath. Um, I know that one where he was telling the story about uh, that he, he had kind of uh, somehow crossed these guys that were going to be in San Quentin, I believe. I think it was in San Quentin. He's been in so many prisons at this point. It's hard to remember which is which. But he was in San Quentin and one of his crew had let him know that those two guys were in there and to kind of watch out because that's the thing. If you'd screwed somebody over outside or, or, you know, uh, they were going to look for you on the inside. And so Danny had, you know, taken magazines and padded his, uh, under his shirt just in case. And sure enough, he got, he got shivved. Uh, but you know, he had realized he got shivved in the magazines at that point. They had, they prevented him from losing his life. I remember after that story, that was, that was one of those ones where you just kind of you need to take a minute before you go back into the into the interview because it's just so holy smokes, you know. Yeah, I I, I couldn't can't even imagine. I mean, um, <laughs> my life seems so mundane compared to like some of the stories and some of the the things that have happened to him. I mean, that's. Uh, Definitely. Everybody's life is. Everybody's <laughs> life seems that way compared to Danny. Unless you're doing something on an epic scale, it's uh, it's tough to compete with uh, the life that Danny's lived. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I can uh, I can concur with your point of view on that. <laughs> what do you think um, viewers of this film will find? I guess most intriguing about Danny. My guess is uh, they would find it most intriguing that he still does the prison talks. He still does the uh, talks uh, with people facing addiction, and he still does talks to a troubled youth. Um, all those aspects, like Danny, when he gets a film, he kind of works to give back at this point. That's why he takes so many films, like, I don't know if you've seen his IMDb, but he's closing in on 400 films if he hasn't passed that already. Like, he does about 10 to 11 films per year. But one of the things that he makes sure that is done every time he, he goes to a film somewhere is he gets his manager uh, or his uh, assistant, uh, Mario, to basically call up prisons uh, or addiction clinics. And then while Danny's there shooting, he goes back and he'll talk to them and he tries to inspire them and give them tools to basically approach life in a different way to hopefully, you know, better their situation to some extent uh, in the same manner that he did. Now, of course, they're not going to probably end up as Hollywood icons, but just the sheer factor of changing your frame of mind uh, about giving back uh, to society and your neighborhood and your community in general can actually literally open up your world in ways that you hadn't realized. So in the film in particular, we end up going to one prison in the end with 40 prisoners sitting there listening to Danny. And, you know, Danny at the time when we did it, I believe was, he was either 74 or 75. 
and he had just had food poisoning the week prior, and, and just you can see as he's walking in to go talk to them, kind of stands up straight. And when he goes in there, just the, the level of attention that he gets from 40 hardcore prisoners, like not a, not a, you can hear a pin drop in the place. And they all listen to him and they respect him. And he gets that respect in, in every avenue that he goes down. Now, with the prisoners, it's probably because he was a prisoner in the past. So they can respect somebody who's gone through what they've gone through. With the addiction clinics, uh, they respect him because he faced the addiction. They know that he's gone through what they've gone through. And then with the teenagers, uh, he has the aspect of that he can utilize the, the, his Hollywood status. And, you know, that way he can actually get his message across so that when he walks into the room, it's Machete that's walked into the room or it's the guy from Spy Kids. So they actually listen to what he has to say. And, and that's one of the important parts about getting a message across is you have to get the people to listen in the first place. Otherwise, it doesn't mess, matter how good your message is. Danny's able to do that when others aren't. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, you can have a good message, but if you are unable to, to reach the people with, you know, relatability and just, you know, um, uh, you know, tangibility, just that, you know, if, if they can't grasp onto their, to your story or know that you, you can relate to them, it's, it's really futile, but he does such a wonderful job because, you know, like you said, he's, he's been through it, been through it all. Yeah, he's the real deal. He, he, he honestly is the real deal in all those aspects. So I think when we come across people like that that have that ability, uh, we really have to utilize it, especially when they have something as important, as important to say as Danny does. Absolutely. I'm not just going to close the door here. It's, uh, there's a mower outside. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so if I'm, I'm – if I'm not mistaken, um, this uh, particular documentary that you did with Danny is is the the first of its time that you've done. Um, are there other people in Hollywood, um, celebrities that uh, kind of grab your attention that you would consider doing a similar documentary with or on? Yeah, like I think I think bios in general are actually a really interesting avenue to go down. Um, I'm, I'm currently, well, we were supposed to be in production on uh, the seven-time Mr. Olympia champion Phil Heath's uh, life story, which is also a fascinating one in itself. Um, but we've been kind of put on lockdown due to COVID uh, just because, you know, we're up in Canada. We can't come and be shooting in the States at this point. But... Um, I think I think just in general, um, the bios are, are a whole new avenue to explore from the directing standpoint. You know, the past three films that I did were kind of big social issue type documentaries. Uh, the first ones were on the drug wars. And, you know, we ended up taking that first film. We were asked to come to Canada's parliament to, to educate senators and MPs on the ramifications of the war against marijuana at that point. You know, that's the type of documentaries that, that I was directing. Right. And, uh, of course, Ice Guardians, Ice Guardians was the same thing. It was kind of looking at the humanity of the role and giving these guys a voice to, you know, not whether you agree with the role or not, but just let them help you understand why they actually did it in the first place. 
and it also just looked at the aspects of how uh, human nature is drawn to that role in both watching it or performing it or having loyalty to it. Um, so with Danny's, it's a more focused story. And uh, with Biodocs, I realize that in general. And it gives you a lot more avenues as far as B-roll to actually uh, facilitate the storytelling. You know, when you're doing those social uh, documentaries, the social issues, when you're trying to fill B-roll, it ends up being quite generic, a lot of it. Because there's only so much you can do to, you know, unless you have a news story that directly applies to what you're talking about, there's only so much you can uh, put in for B-roll. But with Danny's, you know, Danny's was a difficult arc as a bio because Danny's was 50 to 60 years ago where the majority of his story takes place from his troubled youth to prisons. And, you know, back then they didn't have a lot of uh, ways to be capturing this. There's very few pictures of his childhood. And then uh, there was no video cameras around in, in his neighborhood. And then, of course, prison. They certainly weren't taking pictures of each other. Right. But the, the <laughs> unique thing – yeah – the unique thing about it, though, was that because it was Danny's story, he could be put in these environments and relevant storytelling B-roll could be added to it or he could be going through those environments again because it was so particular to him. So I really like that aspect of the biodoc uh, storytelling element uh, in comparison to the ones. So, yeah, I, I, it would be, I would be open to it um, down the road. It's the documentary process does wear on you after a while so it, it's they got to be really profound interesting cool stories to to want to devote three years of your life and you know you don't you don't get rich really doing this uh, type of job either so it has to be fulfilling in, in the storytelling aspect but yeah I completely agree uh, everyone that I've spoken to that you know is involved in uh, indie filmmaking and 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 also uh, the creation of documentaries, they say the same thing, um, which leads to my next question. Um, what was it like for you on a personal level once this film was completed, um, when you sat back and you were able to uh, watch the final product, um, were you pleased with the, the work that you did? And is there anything that you would have changed? There's always things, um, I think that's one of the most important parts of this process is never really being satisfied with it. Uh, I think that, I don't know who said it, and, and it's probably a common known um, example or way of thinking of this in the industry, but I think you can kind of get it 90% of the way of what you hope, and then it just kind of becomes this long, drawn-out process where maybe you're getting in another percent closer. So I, I think I got it. Uh, pretty close to to the ninety percent of the way you know place that I would have liked it to have been. Um, there's always more that I, I would have liked to have added. I one thing that would have been really interesting and in what I'm striving for at the time was uh, I, we were trying to get him into the actual prison, uh, you know, the San Quentin prison, and uh, I wanted to get him into the solitary confinement cell that he actually had had been in when he was facing that death penalty, I just thought that that would be a really interesting aspect to explore and, and see, you know, what comes of, of Danny, the way Danny feels when he goes in there. Unfortunately at the time, um, 
they had kind of changed, I think, some of the rules regarding media, and so they were more cautious letting people in. So we weren't able to get in, and we, we ended up in the Arizona State Prison. But, you know, it's, it's little things like that that I wish uh, could have, you know, could have been added to it. But then you get these little gifts along the way as well, like um, one of the elements of the doc is that Danny is basically brought into the criminal world by his uncle Gilbert when he's young. And because Uncle Gilbert was a legitimate hardcore street gangster, and Danny really looked up to him, and that's how he ended up in uh, in the criminality that he did. Um, later in life, that Uncle Gilbert had a son named Little Gilbert, and Little Gilbert, Danny ended up taking care of him at one point because uh, his Uncle Gilbert was in prison, and then uh, Little Gilbert ended up actually. Uh, Danny wasn't able to take care of him once he got into his teen years. And little Gilbert ended up, uh, I think he and his buddies uh, had shot uh, somebody out, out of a window in a drive-by. And he was kind of caught up in, in the, that life at that point. He did, I think, 38 years in prison. And we were hoping to shoot uh, Danny greeting him and picking him up as he was getting out of prison because it was kind of this relevant, he definitely was this relevant part of Danny's life and his story uh, that was about to take place. And so we were asking, can we, can we get, you know, can we be there when this happens? And Danny, Danny and the crew were like, yeah, yeah, we'll let you know. And then unfortunately the prison, the way they handled it was they, they gave them no notice. And so they, they were basically like, come pick them up in the next few hours. Uh, we're going to be dropping them out in the desert area here and be there and so we weren't able to come down and I was really disappointed about that and so later when I was uh, scanning pictures in Danny's house getting some of his family stuff uh, Mario who is one of Danny's uh, buddies he was sitting on the couch and he was like D weren't you wanting uh, footage of you know little Gilbert getting out and I was like yeah it's a bummer we didn't get it he goes oh well I shot it on my cell phone and so I was like, really? Like, holy smoke. So that's how that footage ended up, you know, getting in the, in the film, which was, um, uh, to me, it was better than had we actually gone down and shot it um, because it was more, more uh, accurate to what actually happened. It, it was what happened. He basically, shot, you know, put up his flip phone, and it was, it was Danny greeting him. It wasn't a Danny and a crew of a camera and a boom mic and all these other people waiting outside <laughs> to greet him. And that's why you also see in the film that it's, uh, it's shot uh, vertically, like on a phone. It's not shot the other aspect ratio. It's because Mario's just got his phone out there, and he's just shooting it straight up like you would on a cell phone in your hand. But... Um, those little gifts uh, are awesome when they come along, even when you don't get the other stuff that you're hoping to get. I completely agree. Yeah, because yeah, that that uh, that cell phone style shot it really draws you in. There's something so um, like inviting. Um, it's mm -hmm. you, you know you feel like you're you feel like you're there with them. You know, uh, it's hard to explain. Yeah, that. yeah. It's, you, you feel so well, it's exactly right. Yeah, and you because you are. You literally are with them at, at that point. Um, when you have somebody who's just a part of the crew and they just got their phone out, I think people are so used to that these days that that's just a part of the environment. Although, right. mind you, I don't think little, little Gilbert, that was probably, well, it was probably... <laughs> 
kind of just hard for him to take everything in as a whole. Anyways, he'd been in, in prison for 38 years, and I don't think they had cell phones when he had first gone in. No. <laughs> so uh-uh. it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be used to it, but everybody else there was. And it was just kind of how it took place is, is what you see on the screen there. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that, you know, when I sit back and I think about this film, it's there's so many, like, tidbits and there's so many um, – eye-opening things uh, that, you know, you can take from this film. And like you said, like when Gilbert went in, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't cell phone technology. And so, you know, there's like all, there's like even what we, what we think is like, you know, minimal technological advances. You know, it's something, you know, huge to him. And, And I think that that's like, it was, it's so amazing to be able to, uh, you know, to experience that with him for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. there's, so, there's so many tidbits from this film. Um, as the director, what's the biggest takeaway that you want people to get from this film, you know, when they watch it? Well, it's, it's funny. Um, I would say there's actually three uh, elements, not to draw this out too long for you, but uh, definitely uh, one of them is Danny saying, which is that everything good in his life has been a direct result of helping him, uh, him, him helping somebody else. And that's doing stuff for others without the expectation of anything in return. It will turn your life around. It just, it's, it's inevitable that positivity draws positivity. And for Danny, um, that was the shift in his life. That was the paradigm shift where when he was in that cell, uh, you know, basically he, up to that point, he had been living a gangster type mentality and the gangster type mentality as he kind of described it was a take, take, take mentality. It's like, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? If I'm going to do this, why, why, you know, I need something out of that. And when he had shifted that frame of mind to just how can I give back just for my fellow man, for my fellow prisoner, his world just completely shifted. And, you know, when he came out, it was as simple as he, uh, there was a little old lady in the neighborhood and she was having trouble carrying out, you know, basically dragging out these big garbage cans on garbage day. And all Danny did was he just started going over and he would just grab the can from her and he would just drag it out for her. And then he started doing that around his neighborhood. And then from there, it just manifested into this greater thing. He became uh, a, dr- a drug addiction uh, counselor that was notorious for going around the world and helping people. Like, he was actually famous that way before he was ever famous in Hollywood. So I think that's, that's one of the, the great big things is, is the idea that do something for others every day without the expectation of something in return. Um, and then uh, another aspect which he kind of delivers to the prisoners with, with, is that when you're facing something that is going to be a massive period of time and it's a daunting thing, so like a prison sentence, you kind of have to approach it uh, with a one-day-at-a-time mentality. Meaning, like, if you start thinking of you're going to be in this hellhole for 400 days, you're going to start losing it. But if you can just start thinking of it from a day-to-day thing, which is, well, what can I do with today? How can I make today good? How can I, you know, have something positive come out of today? You can make it out of these situations. Um, it, it at least gives you a shot at making it out of these situations on a mental level. 
And then the last one, which is kind of the overall theme of the doc, which is you do not have to be a product of your past. It doesn't matter how far you've gone down uh, a road of negativity. There's always time to turn it around. There's always time to evolve as a person. There's always time to dream again. Um, you're, you don't have to be locked in that. And if Danny can face three counts of the death penalty and was a heroin addict and was in every state prison across California, if he can turn his life around, well, then in whatever little ways that we face, we can do it as well. And so if the film provides that final aspect, then I think it's something that could resonate across all cultures, across uh, all countries, and be something really positive for people uh, to see. I love it. Yes, that is a, a very, very, very powerful message indeed, because I think, you know, just people all over the world are, um, you know, facing situations maybe not as, you know, maybe not as dire as, you know, Danny once faced, but, you know, they're facing situations and they don't know how they're going to get out of it. And, you know, it is, it is mindset. And I think if you can keep that, that, that laser focus, and if you can just believe that things will get better, I think that they really will. And this, this film, it's, I mean, it's so, 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 so engrossing. And it, it really just shows the power of, you know, the redemptive power of like your thoughts and your attitude and, and, and putting, you know, walking it out. Like what, what, what does the process look like to walk, to walk those things out? And you did like an amazing job of just bringing that to, to this film. Thank you, Walter. That's really awesome to hear. It's, um, I, I think, too, with that message, I just want to make sure, too, I don't want people to think that that doesn't mean that on a government level or on a, you know, a higher level that we don't have to fight for things, for change, for equality and things like that on the, the larger level. I think what the film more represents is on the personal level within this you know, uh, atmosphere that we're living in right now you know, what can we do in our own lives to help facilitate our own journey on top of all the other change that needs to take place on a structural level within various societies, uh, you know, North American and worldwide. I completely agree. Nicely said. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, you, I, I completely agree. I think that you <laughs> made, made things really clear. And I you know, I agree. It doesn't weigh, you know, a magic marker over things, so to speak. I mean, there's still, you know, a lot of work to be done. But, um, yeah, your, but your film does an excellent job of, you know, showing Danny's story in a way that resonates with, I mean, people of all walks of life. And, and I, that's what I love so much about it. Yeah, that's that's a, that's that is the interesting thing about Danny. It just doesn't matter what culture it is, what race you are. Just everybody <laughs> seems to have an affinity for for what he represents. I always I've thought about that, and I was thinking it's probably one of those things as well that when you you've known somebody to be such have such a tough exterior and be such a tough guy, and then you find out that they're kind of a sweetheart and that they yeah. actually really are involved with helping other people. It makes them extra relatable. It kind of makes you root for them even more than somebody who just 
right from the beginning, you know, was doing it all right. And I don't know if that's right or wrong in, in people <laughs> feeling that way, but that does seem to be the way that it works. So it's, it's definitely something I've noticed as, as once this film was uh, released that he just resonates like, over, over all countries at this point. Yeah, he truly, truly does. I mean, he's, I mean, he transcends culture, um, economics, um, uh, I would say politics, because, you know, I mean, you've got people that are conservative that, you know, love his movies, but then you've got people that are liberal. That love his <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's true. It, it really is true. Yeah, right across the board. It's yeah. great. <laughs> it's awesome. I know that you had, um, you know, before COVID-19, um, you had a, a very busy run on the um, uh, film festival circuit. Um, and I know that the, the film uh, the film was widely received um, at several festivals and did really well. Um, what's, What's in store for the for the months to come? I know that COVID nineteen has kind of put a you know, a damper on a lot of people's plans. Um, are there any projects or anything that you can tell us about that you're working on? Well, that that's the big you know question kind of for the industry at this point. Um, various aspects of the industry are having to deal with it in different ways. On the you know, regular old feature film fronts, uh, they're having to deal, I think they're working out rules on, you know, how to make crews smaller, working out distancing. I don't know how they're going to work with, uh, if American companies are coming up here or Canadian ones are going down there. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Um, from, from our angle, it gets really tough because a lot of our docs, uh, we shoot down in the States. And so there's a, a real issue because documentaries don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of avenues to, to get down there. And then also on top of that, you know, how safe is it to be running around shooting right now? Um, so, yeah, we're, we're attempting to figure out how, how to um, enter back into the production on the, the Phil Heath documentary. That's the seven-time Mr. Olympia fellow. Um, we, we have high hopes that that will turn uh, in the months to come and we will be able to go shoot that. Um, outside of that, though, it, it makes you rethink the whole process. Um, you know, how, how are you going to do interviews now? Is everybody wearing masks? Does everybody have to be six feet apart? You know, can you even get close to somebody when shooting them anymore? I, I don't know. Um, as well, you start looking for stories that are closer to you because you can't really travel around. It's, uh, it's become an interesting uh, environment all the way around. And then there's a lot of other important stories like, you know, with, with the elements as far as the, the protests and things taking place down in the States, which would be very, they're very important topics to be covering right now. And how would you actually get down to go shoot stuff like that? So... I don't really have an answer for you at this point. I think like many people uh, were a little bit freaked out. Uh, we're trying to make our way through it and figure out how we can keep going and, and doing this art form that we love and giving people a voice. Um, but at the same time, we're going to have to evolve like everybody else to whatever this ends up becoming. Um, I don't think anybody 
fully understood, well, maybe a few people, but when this first started happening, I don't know if we all fully understood how deep this was going to go with this pandemic and and the extent uh, that it was going to affect our lives, both in the industry and with family members and stuff like that. So I don't know. <laughs> That's my answer. I don't know. I, agree. I don't know I agree. where we're headed. I agree. Yeah. I When the pandemic first happened in, you know, North America, it was, it was almost surreal because when it was just in Wuhan, it was, um, it seemed like it was so far away. And then once it, you know, started to pop up in North America, it, it took on a different meaning. And then, and then things changed, you know, almost overnight. And so it's hard to say um, what will go back to normal and, and what will remain forever changed. It's really, really hard to say. Um, I know uh, a lot of filmmakers, you know, they talk about, um, you know, how technology has, has really impacted the, the filmmaking industry and how, um, you know, uh, stuff like uh, direct-to-video, to um, you know, how it has impacted them and, and, and even stuff like piracy. And I, I think in years to come, uh, the coronavirus will also be one of those things that I, I think ultimately will reshape the film industry either for better or for worse. And it's, it's really interesting to be living in this time period where, you know, something like, you know, you're witnessing something like this, you know, actively changing, you know, dozens, you know, hundreds, of industries and I think film filmmaking is one of the industries that it's that it has really changed you know maybe for for good you know I mean you know who knows absolutely um because I keep uh it's I have talked daily with uh about theaters with family members and just how how are the theaters going to end up opening up back up down the road? Because I think you know it's it's going to be that's one of those really tough spots where you have people in a really confined spot, and there's a lot of them. Usually, you know, you at least have a hundred or more people. They're right next to each other. The air system is probably cycling air, you know, and just uh, around the room, so everybody's breathing the same air and. It's for about an hour and a half to two hours. It's like a, a the perfect spot. COVID to kind of make an appearance um, if somebody has it. So, yeah, it's, you start thinking it's going to could even change to we're going to have plexiglass for all I know between people sitting at seats. <laughs> it could come down to that. You know, like, I, yeah. and that's something that I I already deeply miss, you know, but it's uh, changes in a lot of ways. Like, even the, the Zoom meetings that everybody has now, and uh, the schooling that's taking place, like a lot of people are realizing, oh, I can actually do a lot of these college courses online. You know, why am I paying, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to go into a classroom when I can get a lot of this uh, this material over the the Zoom meetings? It's, um, it's changed a lot of things. Like the 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 film industry on the back end had already been changed by technology greatly because we started out originally where 
we had to edit in the same room if I was co-editing with somebody or we had to share the same computer. And, you know, we needed offices and stuff. But now, uh, well, yeah, and that was back when we did it in a basement suite. How about that? And that was on standard def. <laughs> I don't even know oh, if a lot of people remember what standard definition actually is. Um, <laughs> but now, you know, now I co-edit with my editor and we do it over Dropbox. You know, we put files back and forth and we make changes and it's, we're doing it in my edit suites in my apartment now. So, you know, we've, we've had that change, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know where this is going. I don't know where this is going. And, and I think in particular, yeah, the, this industry in itself is going to be deeply affected by it because a lot of, that's why you don't see a lot of new movies coming right out right now. The, all the new movies that you were seeing come out during the pandemic were ones that had been shot before the pandemic hit. And now, you know, a lot of these places are running out of material. So, very true. Yeah, I, yeah it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, it's not something I ever thought I'd see in my lifetime, but it's for us too. It's interesting. <laughs> I was just going to say, Walter, I was going to add to it. Um, one of the things that hit home with us too, and what we noticed about the pandemic that brought it home as being more real was. When you have a friend or a family member uh, that that actually gets hit by it, and and that's when it, it becomes a real reality that you start really planning your life around it. Uh, because like we had a friend who was um, he's probably in his 40s and good-looking guy, you know, fit, dad, you know, just nothing wrong with him at all, and he got COVID, and he just about he he got to the edge of just about losing his life. He was in the hospital and he was on a respirator, and he's still attempting to recover. Oh so God. for us, you know, it's it's one thing to have the the requirements from the government, but it the second part is that when it actually hits you personally with people you know and you care about, it's uh you start looking at it in a whole whole different light, especially when you have people in your life who are fragile, uh, other people who are sick. That it's, it's it becomes not necessarily even about you anymore. You're going, geez, if I bring this in here, I could, you know, parts of our family could get wiped out. So it really adjusts your thinking on um, the risks to take and not take with it. Absolutely, yeah, and and um, uh, yeah, it's it's you're so right. My uh, my wife is a is a nurse, and she tells me, um, you know, she's she has patients that you know, are younger than me, you know, they're, you know, in their mid to early 20s, and uh, they, you know, contract this this virus, and, you know, a a number of them have died, um, and then Mm. some of them are still fighting it, you know, like months later, you know, there's a, a woman that got it back in March, and it's now July, and she's still fighting the 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 effects of the infection, you know, and it's just crazy uh, that, you know, some people don't believe it's real or, you know, some people just think it's like a cold. It's just really crazy, you know. Yeah, and just the description from, um, you know, our friend, just like he was suddenly, he he would uh, walk four steps and his lungs were just on fire just from taking four steps and just yeah. putting that in perspective of your own life and going, holy smokes, what the heck is that actually doing to your system? 
you know, and then of course now we don't know the ramifications down the road too with it as well. Like you may get it and be totally fine or, or you get over it, but what does it do to your overall system down the road? Does it deteriorate it? So, you know, of course all questions that I don't have the answers to, but it's a, it's a scary time uh, as far as not having those types of answers and the types of risks that we're all willing to take uh, knowing that, that it is out there and that we don't know the full, its full capability of destruction on, on uh, us. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a, it's a virus that they're still really studying because they, they still don't know everything about it. And I, I think, um, you know, if we can make it out of this and, and if they can, you know, somehow come up with like a vaccine and, if we can get a handle on it, it would be it would be interesting if, um, uh, from a film standpoint, if the virus was like explored, like later on, so that people could get kind of the full story, you know, of like, you know, how it, how it originated, what it did to the to the world's population, how it changed the world. I think, you know, seeing that. Um, in a in a film narrative would would be one for the history books so to speak and 100 percent, and it's it's an important one i think at this point i've thought about that one uh endlessly uh over the past few months and how you know that might actually happen and i think as well yeah. kind of safety measure of making sure that that's going to happen is i think that there's a lot of filmmakers right now. Like, there's there's going to be plenty of documentaries and hopefully really good ones that do code on that because it is it's a it's an aspect of society that's fascinating. Not only from a a standpoint of how we deal with a pandemic, but how the press deals with a pandemic, uh, how um, relations with citizens in the country interact during a pandemic. Like all these aspects of society that become fascinating to see how the structure either works or breaks down at various points and and what needs to be fixed or what actually worked i think those would be really helpful things to look at um because you know down the road after the COVID, hopefully after the COVID, uh if we get by the COVID situation we will sorry i'll put it that way um when we get by the COVID situation um there may be other ones like this, and it would be nice to be even better prepared down down the road so that we can really tackle these kind of things. And I think I think documentaries that's the one area that they can kind of facilitate. Yeah, uh, where new news stories or, or social media aren't aren't quite as effective. Uh, the news media and social media are really effective at get the, getting the initial stories out and the ideas, but where documentaries are effective is that they have that span of an hour and a half to two hours where that subject can be really broken down and uh, given a, a greater picture, a greater understanding, and, and introduce more personal stories where people can actually relate to the information that's actually being delivered in it. So they will be a very important aspect of that down the road because they also examine uh, the the areas of social media and news media. How did you know? How did those things deal with it? I think that'll be a fascinating aspect for documentaries to approach down the road. 
It's a crazy I, time, absolutely crazy time where you can, you know, type out on your phone a story and it can get out to millions of people, you know, depending on how big your Twitter is. Now, mine's not like that at all, but on a celebrity status or, or a giant news media organization that they have instant access to people within seconds of delivering information. It's just That's right. created a, a very interesting situation with with the pandemic and, and all the other social issues taking place right now. Yeah, it really has. It, um, it's, it's eye opening. It's, it's scary, but it's also, um, it, it is also just really, really eye opening. And it shows that, uh, you know, the power of other nation, you know, it, I think we're, we are more connected at this time than we have ever been, you know, as, you know, citizens of the world, you know, we, you know, we're just so connected. We're, we are literally at the touch of a button, you know, we're, we are so close and so connected and um, it just, uh, it kind of blows your mind when you think about it. It's, uh, It's really something to think about. Absolutely. And I think that's where um, one of the areas that social media, you know, even though you have areas of social media where, uh, you know, you'll get areas where the information isn't going to be as accurate. But aside from that, on the positive side, there's areas, a majority of areas where you will get accurate information and you'll get it, like you're saying, on on a scale and a level that we've never been able to attain before. Um, and where we hear about stories that we never would have heard about before from various countries around the world. Like back in the day when I was growing up, we got information from the news. It would be, for us, it was like Channel 2, Channel 4, or Channel 5. And if you weren't there at 6 o'clock to get that news, then maybe you had another chance at 11. And it was whatever news was able to fit within that hour. And it was however it was portrayed or, you know, whatever was chosen to, to be illustrated. But now you have at your fingertips this, it's, it's like a little magic electronic box that taps into information from around the world instantly. And, you know, I relate it back to uh, the, the cannabis reform when we were doing those films. That was a, one of the big, big changes that took place between the two films was that social media... Social media really grabbed hold after the first film uh, within just the general uh, cannabis knowledge among the various countries around the world. And once that knowledge got around, once that information got around that the sky wasn't going to fall if if, if, uh, marijuana legalization took place and that maybe there was actually benefits to to actually having the government run it versus uh, leaving it in the hands of criminal enterprises, that that's when it it actually shifted. People woke up because they actually had the information uh, that that hey we we can do this. We can legalize this, and it's going to be okay, and we'll actually create a better place. And that was all through the spread of information, and that wouldn't have happened years and years ago. That's why it went you know from I don't know when the when Nixon had reengaged the drug war, and then you know we had uh, Reagan bring it back in. Uh, and and we basically the cannabis war on cannabis thrived for for you know decades upon decades, and then finally when that social media got a hold of it and all the information could come out about the truth about cannabis and how it actually can help people and it 
I was actually used medically for so many years. That information transitioned uh, the ability to to shift the government's approach to it, and now you're seeing it legalized here and there. And in Canada, we our whole country legalized it, and the <laughs> sky did not fall. Everything's great, you know. Like, like it can be improved, of course, with with anything that's regulated. There's definitely definite room for improvement on the structuring of it, but as a whole, it's really darn good to not see people end up in metal cages for going out and trying a joint uh, these days. So I equate that to to the information spread. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, um, I mean, it has the power to, you know, liberate the minds of people to um, help to uh, reshape mindsets and, and to, to break uh, old ways of thinking. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, when you're talking about uh, that, I mean, it's that's something that um, is even more powerful, in my opinion, than, like, military power because it's, you know, with, you can um, shape the way that a person thinks or, or reshape or uh, bring to their attention that, you know, this is this way or this is what this is or, you know, versus that, it's, it's it just is so powerful because you can essentially uh, reshape a generation of, of people based on the the ones that you touch initially through, you know, the first, you know, the first wave of media, so to speak. And so it's really powerful. It's, I mean, it's, you know, you think, like you said, this, this legislation reform is, it's huge because it has, you know, taking um, – it has cut back substantially on the incarceration rate that, you know, that there once was. And, you know, now, you know, if, if you – you know, if and when you have children or uh, if and when I have children, you know, our children will grow up and, you know, that will be, you know, the norm. It won't be, you know, looked down at, you know – in, you know, any more, you know, let's say five, 10, 15 years from now. And that's really, really powerful. I think that that's, that says a lot about uh, just the, the power behind, um, you know, this particular form of media. Yeah. And, and it's funny because you and I are going through this. It feels like, you know, we're living it and it feels like it's it's a long time. But if you're looking at it on the scale of humanity, this is just a blip, and this is happening at an exponential rate, and it's just like it's skyrocketed the 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 speed at which change is taking uh, taking place in society at the moment. It doesn't feel like it to you and I, and and for a lot of people fighting for that change because they're having to live through it. But if you're looking at it on the scale of how far you know, humanity has come in the last decade or, or 20 years. And, you know, some of the stuff that was taking place, you know, 50 years ago that we now go, I know, God, we actually thought that way. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, and then if you take that back even further, it just gets crazier and crazier of how long it took for these changes to take place over time. So if you look at what's happening now, it is actually happening at a light speed Right. And, um, and that's only going to progress. It's exponential. It's, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that, again, is with social media. 
and the social media. That's why you see a lot of these news stories that, that people are getting upset about. They're stories that you never would have seen in the past, and it's because average people are able to pass around that information now. Absolutely. Yeah, the uh, the exchange of information is uh, has grown exponentially, and it's, I mean, it's, but I think it's, it's helped us. I mean, it, it has its downsides, I mean, of course, you know, but I think it has really, really helped because like 50 years ago, you know, I hate to say this, but 50 years ago, I mean, I don't know that, you know, like Danny would have gotten a fair shake. You know, I think he just would have been out for the count, you know. Um, I, I I completely agree, man. It's it's it, The way I think of it is, like, it, it's kind of like, you know, when you see a stock market graph and it's yeah. like if something's rising, and, and but, but as it's rising, there's always these little dips and they go down and then it comes back up and it goes down and it comes back up. But but as long as it's always still progressively going upwards, meaning like it's it's moving to better society, it's making things safer for people, it's making uh, situations where people can actually find happiness, and we're all moving towards not suffering in in whatever ways, and we're all contributing to society. As long as we're all moving in that direction, there's definitely going to be pitfalls along the way because that's part of the struggle. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a struggle involved. But um, I agree completely that on a whole, we are, we are moving towards something that's better, you know, and even just little things like uh, electric cars, you know, um, yes. <laughs> it, it's just, it's, it's a movement forward. It's, it's like, well, why not? Uh, you know, uh, the movement towards solar panels. Well, if we have that capability, regardless of how you feel about, um, uh, the issues surrounding, you know, the, the global uh, uh, weather changes and stuff. Just in general, is it not good that we're going to not pollute as much? Like, I just think it's good in general. Let's just not put as much crap into the air. If we have the ability to make solar panels and, and uh, create this, this world that is, you know, almost like uh, Joe Rogan always talks about being in a Tesla and it's like being in a spaceship but we're creating this world that's progressively moving forward to just becoming a, a cool, cleaner, more efficient place to live. Why not? You know, I agree. I agree. There's uh with more information, it, you know, there is more, um, I feel like there's more responsibility. And like you said, why not? You know, if we have the, um, the insight, the intellect, the information to, uh, make this world a better place, you know, I feel like we um, are also, you know, required to be good stewards. And I feel like we should implement those things and, and you know, use the information that we have to heal heal our, our world. Because, you know, the world is in need of a lot of healing, you know. And, you know, and, and that's what I think is so beautiful about, like documentaries, you know, filmmaking is, I mean, it's, um, it's a media form that is able to reach people of all walks of life, regardless of, you know, race, sexual orientation, um, you know, financial standings. I mean, it's, it's something that just really transcends all of that. And, you know, I've, I just think, you know, if we've got all this stuff, we, you know, we owe it to ourselves to 
to to be responsible and to you know use it to to heal the world yeah well it's it's the most direct reflection of the environment that we're all living in uh documentaries tend to attempt to to show and reveal that and and to some extent show us how we can do do something better or how how something was overcome and how we can learn from it and that's that is one of the benefits of the documentaries that that they have the time to do that so it's uh we yeah we have to keep implementing that side of stuff because they've uh they've been very important in a lot of things even i'm just thinking back to some of the ones i've seen over time you know, back to Blackfish, uh, I think it was called yeah. one, uh, the killer whale, and, uh-huh. um, you know, but, but and then on the more fun and, and interesting side, not more interesting, they're both equal interesting, but on, on a more exhilarating side, we have, uh, you know, free solo and ones like that. But, uh, yeah, documentaries are the area that constantly though hit on the political, political aspects and are able to present it in a way that uh, are going to be entertaining enough that people will want to watch, but also convey important, you know, messages that that will help them structure the way they think about their world around them uh, in ways that maybe just a five-minute tidbit from the news or a social media post might not be able to achieve. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, yeah, I agree. It's, um, that's the thing about social media. It's, it's powerful. It's, and it, I mean, it can be archived. I mean, we've seen that, but it's, you know, long form media can, can do, you know, what social can't, you know? And, and I think that that's one of the strengths of, you know, long form media, like documentaries. It's uh, just, just, it's able to explore more. But social media is a nice it, it No, social media is, is actually very, very valuable these days, not only from the standpoint of what I was talking about earlier, which is actually, you know, gets out news stories that may have not otherwise been able to get out. Um, That's true, yeah. Aside from that, though, they, and social media uh, also facilitates documentaries' ability to get out. Like, if you take our little documentaries that we did back in the day, one of the reasons that they became so big was the, the social media aspect and the people started spreading the news, especially with the cannabis ones. That's why uh, we were able to do the second one. Like when we, we entered that second documentary, I, I personally had, didn't want to do another uh, doc on cannabis. I, I thought I'd said everything that needed to be say, said, and it was very stressful to do the first one. And, and the first one did well, but, the, the fans of the first one were actually what drove us to do the second. They, they were kept asking through social media, when's the second one going to come out? Can you do the second one? Oh, but what wow. we ended up doing was we did, a, yeah, we did a Kickstarter at the time, and we basically had put up, I can't remember the number, but we had put up a number uh, that would basically fill the gap we needed if we were to do this documentary. We said, okay, well, it's in your hands. Like, if you really want us to do it, here you go, you know? And they just did... The, the through social media, they just blew right right through the kick, Kickstarter campaign. And I think back in the time, uh, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure at the time that was the, the largest amount made for documentary in Canada on Kickstarter. And so that's what launched us with the, the Culture High. 
And then the culture high became something that was spread around everywhere, more so through social media than anything else. And then we got picked up through distribution because of all the positivity that we were getting uh, through the social media. Mind you, we did have some some distribution uh, already in the works, but once the uh, other distributors down the road saw the level at which it was being embraced, that that's how we were able to get that message out there. And at the time, that wasn't big big, big popular message to be uh, you know talking about cannabis reform, uh, at least in the mainstream. But uh, social me- media kind of coincides with documentaries' uh, ability these days to get out. And, and that, from our standpoint, has been awesome. We had that on the Ice Guardians. We had that on the Culture High, the Union. And now we're seeing it on the, the um, inmate number one, just being embraced by all these awesome people from around the world who want to help, you know, get the message out. Absolutely. I, I love that because, yeah, uh, Ice Guard, Twitter is how I found out about Ice Guardians. And that's how I ended up, ended up interviewing Adam. Um, so you're right. I mean, I uh, I love how you broke that down. Yeah, that's yeah. You're right. You're absolutely right. Well, it's, it's daily now. It's it's insane, and we get messages from countries that we didn't even know you could see it. <laughs> like, Watching ice guardians and where and what language? What? You know, and it's so cool though to to have that. And with the other films. That was the really cool thing was that Netflix ended up putting uh, uh, both The Culture High and Ice Guardians. I think both of those films ended up in over 70 countries on Netflix, and we ended up having to get them uh, translated into, uh, you know, 10 to 13 different languages per film. Like, how cool is that? That's you know, very cool. Seeing those, yeah, somewhere that might not even know what hockey is, you know, uh, gets to see this film, this crazy film that's, that's talking about these guys that their job is to go and protect stars and they drop the gloves. And yeah, it's, it's pretty wild stuff. I remember with the culture height, it even ended up in, it was in Thailand or something. And some what? royal family had tweeted like some weird stuff. Like we would just get daily. And yeah, there's so many interesting people we've, we've met through it too. Like all those films, uh, those are the ones where we got to meet like Snoop Dogg. We were able to meet, uh, you know, chiefs of police of Seattle, DEA agents, uh, former drug czars, uh, Wiz Khalifa, um, professors from from Harvard. All these really fascinating people, and and then of course the the hockey fighters were fascinating in themselves. Every one of those guys, it's just kind of blew your mind when you realize the depths of, of their character and why, you know, their feelings behind what they, why they did what they did. Yeah. What a, what an incredible journey. I mean, it's a, that's, yeah, that's gotta be, I mean, cause just hearing it is like, it's, it's, it's exciting. And it, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, you as, the creator, you know, how, you know, how you feel, you know, seeing, you know, the the work of your hands, you know, um, being uh, explored from people all over the world. I mean, it's got to be just riveting. I think, I think it's amazing. Yeah, I think it becomes, 
it becomes surreal at some point for for the whole crew. Um, it's uh, like we end, it, it, the other thing too is like we end up traveling quite a bit to shoot these, and the only reason I've been to many places around the world is because of the docks. But it's also kind of crazy at the same standpoint because um, on the same standpoint because you don't really fully get to visit those places when you're there. So it's like. Yeah, we went to Spain, but were we really in Spain? Or did we just go shoot a couple of interviews and then leave? Um, but, yeah, on the other end, it, it's, it's a surreal experience. It's uh, having, having the reach that it does. And it, I, it's one of those things that because you're only seeing it from, you know, your phone or your apartment, um, I don't know if it fully hits uh, with with how far it's actually reaching at this point. But, yeah, it's still been an interesting journey. Who knows where it's going to go from here? Who knows? Who knows, Adam? I called you Adam. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, were <just> talking <laughs> about, we were just talking about Adam. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, how's Adam, by the way? <laughs> Adam's doing great, as far as I know. Um, he's actually, uh, he has uh, is, uh, an awesome family with uh, three amazing kids and his uh, eldest daughter there is well on her way to becoming one of the best hockey players in Canada at this point. She's oh, wow. probably going to have a documentary about her sometime down the road. Um, but Adam's doing, doing his thing, which is uh, just constantly getting new docs started up all over the place. And so... Uh, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's got several that he's trying to get funded at this point. Um, and, uh, I think his, the latest one is, uh, is, uh, going to be coming out with Bizbane. I think that, that one will be coming up down the road. And then, uh, and then of course he's, uh, producing on, um, this, uh, the one that I'm doing with Phil Heath right now. So he's kind of, uh, the one behind the, uh, basically getting the financing to make this one happen. So, yeah, it's uh, he's, he's as busy as ever and uh, constantly doing what he calls the creative hustle. So. Yeah. <laughs> Brett, how did, you, how did you guys meet? Well, originally it started with uh, Adam was coming back. He, he had been doing modeling of all things, I think, down in New York. And oh, he wow. was coming back to uh, Kelowna, and he was going to be running a, a club there that he had kind of inherited. And what he had seen when he was there uh, was that the, the industry, the cannabis industry in Kelowna was just skyrocketed at the time, the, the underground industry. So all his old friends had been doing grow ops and, and stuff like that. And he was at a point where he could, he could go into that and make lucrative money or he could, uh, you know, do a film on it and he had never done a film uh produced a film before so he ended up going around looking for a director uh to basically direct and write a film on it which he would produce and then uh he ended up finding me down in uh vancouver and i uh i brought on at the time as well my uh editor and business partner and he became a producer on it as well stephen green who uh that it's uh, all the docs uh, that we do. And, um, yeah, it kind of went from there. And so it, originally it was going to be an expose 
on just the cannabis industry. And then when I started looking into the history of it and, and realizing the insane nature of how it became illegal and all these aspects uh, medically and stuff, that's when I expanded it well beyond just being an expose of the BC industry and turned it into a full-fledged, like, what the heck is going on here type of documentary examining the entirety of the uh, prohibition and the nature of how it got to where it was. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. And then we just kept progressing from there. We went on to the Culture High and, uh, and did that one and Steven, Steven as well. And then we uh, jumped into Ice Guardians after that and then, uh, you know, ended up on Inmate from there. So it's been, it's been a long haul. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, he he and Stephen and I have been uh, have been on all all four of those docks and and we're there for the for the journey of all of those. That's incredible. That is incredible. Um, I wanted to ask you, Brett, um, how can our listening audience uh, find out more about you and just kind of keep abreast of what you're doing? I, I know you're active on social media. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I got several ways. I finally got my butt together and, uh, did a, um, a website. Uh, it's called Brett, BrettHarveyFilms.com. Uh, and unfortunately, you actually literally have to type out www.BrettHarveyFilms.com to make it actually come up on Google at this point. Because if you do a search, it won't. Uh, hasn't been around long enough to come in a, come up in the search. So uh, that way, then I'm uh, definitely active on Twitter. And unfortunately, I chose the handle at Brett BKS because uh, that was back in the day when we were running through BKS Productions. But now, uh, unfortunately, I've been verified as that, so I can't, I can't go to something that actually just says my name. <laughs> so I'm at, at, Brett, at Brett BKS on Twitter. And then on Instagram, I'm at, at Brett B, uh, sorry, at Brett Harvey official. And uh, that's uh, where I pop out Instagram type posts. Love it. I love it. Uh, Brett, uh, I don't have any questions, but I just wanted to open the floor to you. If there's anything else you'd like to say to our listening audience? Um, no, I just, uh, I think I want to take the you know, last seconds here to just thank you uh, to do something so in depth. Um, it's awesome. Anybody Anytime anybody decides to do an interview, um, but to, to take the depth that you have and uh, really go into interesting questions and and uh, get a good feel for where the film, you know, how the film got to be and why it is the way it is is, is pretty cool. So thank you to you um, and thank you to your audience for taking the time to listen to my butt. Um, and uh, listen to my butt. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Listen to me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I just uh, – any support we, we receive at this point, we're just more than thankful for. You know, as I said, we, this, is a, this film was the first one that ever got signed to uh, a major studio. So we, we uh, actually got signed to Universal, which is just awesome. Um, it took place after the film was made. They, they saw it and they, they seemed to love it and brought it on board and embraced it and are doing awesome things with it. So we have that level of support, but we always, uh, in the end, 
need to thank the people that are, are there for us on every one of these docs. They're the backbone and they're, they're people like your audience who listen to these things and, uh, and support documentary making, which again, you know, it's not the most lucrative uh, way to approach work and life, but as long as it's getting out to people and it's uh, having an effect on people, then we'll keep doing it. So thank you. Absolutely. I, I agree. It's uh it's a it's a tough um, profession, but I think the uh, at the end of the day, you touch so many lives in the ways that uh, you may never know. And I think that um, you know, just hearing you you talk about you know some of your travels and the things that you've seen, um, I think that that you've touched a lot of lives with your films. And so I I think that that's really something to be very proud of. Well, I, thanks, man. I, it's very kind of you. I, I just, I, all I can say is I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. (laughs) But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for stopping by the show today. Thank you. And I, uh, I hope, I hope your weather, I'm assuming because you live in Florida, that your weather is going to continue to be awesome down there. You were telling me before we jumped on here that it's sunny, and uh, I will hope that our rainy weather in Vancouver uh, ceases to exist for at least another couple of days up here. And uh, I hope you and all your uh, listeners have an awesome rest of the day. Me as well. Thank you so much, Brett. Okay, thanks. Uh, talk to you soon, hopefully again, on another fascinating uh, subject and project. <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks, Brett. Okay, bye-bye.